Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, the expansion of broadband in greater Minnesota, an early ice out on Minnesota lakes, and a World War II vet lends a hand to the Salvation Army. But first, there are three charges against Derek Chauvin and an important legal question pertaining to each one. What is required to obtain a conviction? MNN's Bill Warner gets some answers from Hamlin University professor David Schultz. Derek Chauvin has three charges uh, filed against him. One is second-degree murder. Another is a third-degree murder charge, and finally, a charge of second-degree manslaughter. Can you give us a rough idea, what's the difference between those in terms of what's required for conviction? Sure. For any of the charges against Derek Chauvin, uh, you're going to have to first show that he caused the death of George Floyd. And then for each of the charges, there's an additional requirement that you have to show what's called mens re, or a certain level of intentionality. In American law, you have to both prove that somebody did something and they did it with a particular state of mind. So again, for all three of the charges, first the prosecution is going to have to show um, that Derek Chauvin caused the death of George Floyd. Once they've done that, now the question becomes uh, which of those three charges would be appropriate in terms of a possible conviction. And when we start with third-degree murder, what we'd have to show here is that that not only, of course, did Derek Chauvin cause the death of George Floyd, but he did it in a way by committing an act that's considered eminently dangerous to others, and it shows, and this is the language of the law, a depraved mind without a human, uh, for, without regard for human life. So the critical point would be what? Depraved mind, uh, whatever exactly that means. Um, that's going to be something that that the prosecution is going to have to show. Is, is uh, intent actually required for a third-degree murder charge, a conviction, third-degree murder? Well, what intent in terms of our classic model of first-degree premeditated murder, no. But for all of these charges, you still have to show some state of mind, um, which is what we refer to in the law by some type of intentionality, but we'll use the words um, state of mind. So for third-degree murder, you would have to show essentially what's called the depraved mind um, um, that does not show a regard for human life. What about second-degree murder? This is interesting. This is known as what's what prosecutors and many people call the felony murder rule or the felony murder doctrine. And by that, if somebody commits a crime, uh, another felony, and it results in the death of, of some other individual or of an individual, um, it allows you to not have to show intentionality or state of mind um, for that crime. It's a very controversial doctrine. Prosecutors love it. But essentially, if you can show that Derek Chauvin was in the process of committing another felony and then caused the death of George Floyd, then you could charge him um, and convict him of what's called second-degree murder, which is called felony murder. Now, what would be the other felony that, uh, that he would allegedly be, con- be, be, be uh, committing at the time? It could be what? Um, it could be the murder in third degree. It could be the manslaughter in the second degree uh, as possibilities. So okay. the, the second degree murder is highly dependent upon what the jury does also in the 
uh, manslaughter, second degree, or murder in the third degree. These are very technical uh, definitions, uh, and um, the, the jury is going to, I would assume, have some pretty complicated instructions. It is. It is. And let's just do the third one here. That's manslaughter right. in the second degree requires a showing of what's called culpable negligence. That, of course, we'd have to show that Derek Chauvin caused the death of George Floyd, but he did it in such a way where Derek Chauvin had culpable negligence that led to an unreasonable risk um, for for cause of bodily harm to George Floyd. All three of these are charges are very technical, very specific under Minnesota law. And the task for the prosecution is going to be able to show that Derek Chauvin met at least one of these these definitions of state of mind in order to find him guilty of, of that. In addition to, again, we have to come back to it. They first have to prove that Derek Chauvin caused the death of George Floyd. That's Hamlin University professor David Schultz. And Scott, while I was talking to the good professor, I forgot to ask him a very important question, so I called him back. We have three separate charges against uh, Derek Chauvin. Why three? Well, the reason why we have three is our law recognizes that because we might have different states of mind when we do certain things, we will hold people criminally accountable according to different levels of what we call intentionality. Here, the three statutes have three different levels of state of mind regarding what Derek Chauvin um, was doing or intending to do when he put his knee on the neck of George Floyd. And thus, that's the basic reason for three different charges, because the prosecution thinks um, that what he did violated one, if not perhaps all three of those laws. Are three charges um, a, a hedging of bets? Uh, that may be a, a misuse of the, of the term, but I think folks know what we're talking about. In other words, that if they, they don't get a conviction in one, on one count, that they'll potentially get a conviction on another count. I, I assume that factors into it also? That is accurate. Now, think about, for example, murder in the second degree, which is a very serious charge, uh, which runs with it a, a, a prison sentence of up to 40 years, perhaps, um, that it requires something different than does third degree murder. And throwing in, let's say, a lesser charge um, where it doesn't have to be quite as as intentional um, as as a higher degree charge might make it easier to prove a third-degree murder, which is why the prosecution um, originally charged on it. The judge dismissed it, but then the prosecution asked for it to be reinstated. It gives the jury perhaps another option to say, well, we're not convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that it was second-degree murder, but we can be persuaded that it might have been third-degree murder or second-degree manslaughter. That's Hamlin University professor David Schultz helping us understand what is a very complicated legal case. Scott? Thank you, Bill. We'll have more Minnesota Matters after this. Minnesota Rural Electric Cooperatives. Who are we? We're your neighbors, co-workers, and friends. That's right, we live and work in the community too. Because of that, we're committed to making sure our electric services stay reliable, affordable, and safe. 
Throughout the state, Minnesota Electric Co-ops work independent of each other, but with the same goal, provide power to Minnesota. You have so many other things to worry about. Your electricity isn't one of them. Minnesota Rural Electric Cooperatives, bringing power to the people of Minnesota. Ranger Station. Yeah, hi. I'd like to report a bear sighting in the forest. Uh-huh. One second, I'm having a smoke. Next thing I know, I'm face-to-face with Smokey Bear. Wow. And he told me it only takes one spark to start a wildfire. Did you know nine out of ten wildfires are caused by humans? I had no idea. That's why Smokey's famous and you're not. If you see someone in danger of starting a wildfire, step in and make a difference. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Learn more at SmokeyBear.com. Only you can prevent wildfires. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. As they head into the Easter Passover break, state lawmakers are considering measures that would expand broadband to greater Minnesota. It's an issue Brian Crambeer with My Energy Cooperative cares a great deal about. I recently spoke with Brian about the importance of leveling the playing field with Internet access for all Minnesotans. Uh, the legislature has got uh, several activities, uh, several bills dealing with broadband. Uh, one of them is obviously funding to uh, to get broadband out to greater Minnesota where, where it's not. Uh, and the big challenge there is is certainly density. Uh, there are uh, 44 electric co-ops in the state of Minnesota, and many of the electric co-ops are putting fiber in the ground themselves just to operate their electric distribution systems. And what we're hoping to do is to be able to utilize some of the resources that the electric co-ops have uh, to to be able to offer that to other retail providers to deliver broadband to those greater areas of of Minnesota. So it's really designed so when we have to go out and and put uh, broadband in the ground, uh, we have to go out and and meet with individual landowners, uh, and and some of them are, are not uh, residents uh, of the area, they're just vacant land and, and non-residential, that the challenge that we have there is it just takes a lot of time. And in order to, to get that easement to include not only the electric, but also the added use of communication, uh, that's what we really need to be able to uh, be able to go out there and, and get fiber in the ground to be able to use that for other uses. And tell me a little bit about how this would how this would work with the cooperatives. It was it would actually be a, something of a, a cooperative of, of cooperatives to share the broadband. Am I am I explaining that uh, well? You are. Uh, I think the uh, the big thing is it's been compared uh, to broadband to to getting out to the most rural areas, uh, much like the electrification was in the 1930s. Uh, very low density. Uh, I know in my energy's case, we have less than four members per mile of line. So really what this is, is it's, it's co-ops partnering, and we have a partnership at my energy with two local telephone cooperatives uh, to help deliver broadband in, in, in southeastern Minnesota. So you're exactly right. It is certainly a partnership to, uh, to get out to that last mile. And for our listeners out there that maybe don't necessarily understand this particular issue, I mean, how much of a disparity is there, say, between what we're seeing uh, with broadband in the metro versus in in parts of greater Minnesota? Is it a pretty wide gap? There is. Uh, When you take a look at uh, the the state has a broadband map up on their website, and I'd encourage people to, to take a look at it. Most of the areas are in greater Minnesota that have 
no service or service that is not adequate to uh, to, to be able to, to do a, a video conference at home. And the challenge that we run into is that not only is it just getting an internet connection, but what happens if you have two people that are working from home and a student trying to do distance learning? Uh, it just isn't adequate. And that gets all the way back to the FCC standards where you have a a 25-3 number, which is their minimum base, and 25 being your your download and the 3 being the upload. It's the upload that that really handles that video being broadcast uh, on the Zoom uh, meeting that you're having. So if you have maybe one person in a household that's utilizing that, maybe the 3 is adequate. But when you have multiple users uh, with that bandwidth, it really isn't adequate. And there's a lot of places, I think 82% of the state uh, only has 25.3. So that really shows you the, uh, the disparity that we have in, in, in the, across the state of Minnesota. And with regard specifically to the broadband easement uh, legislation that's up for consideration, what kind of traction is that getting at the state capitol as of now? Uh, it's, it's received very favorable traction. Uh, it has passed uh, uh, one of the committees uh, in the Senate and one of the committees in the House, uh, and I think it's, uh, it has one more committee to go through in the Senate, uh, just pertaining to, uh, I think, a legal review. Uh, so we're pretty optimistic, and, and I think this is really important because electric co-ops are nonprofit uh, organizations. We're looking for an opportunity to, to help and benefit our members in, in greater Minnesota because we want all of our members to be able to have uh, broadband because it's an important quality of life thing, just like electrification was back in the 1930s. Uh, that's well stated, Brian. I appreciate that. And I was just trying to take a, a quick look before our call here to see where we were uh, specifically. Do you know, is that um, is the other committee hearing that's coming up on the calendar as of yet? It has not been scheduled, uh, but we are uh, working with our bill sponsor to, uh, to, to see if we can't get that heard. We're also uh, speaking with leadership in the Senate uh, to also make it a priority because we're we're thinking that a lot of these bills are, are going to come back and, and be part of an omnibus bill uh, in, in the end. And in terms of uh, partisanship when it comes to something like this, I mean, is this, is this favored by one side versus the other, or do we have bipartisan agreement on this particular issue for the most part? I would say that this is uh, probably one of the most bipartisan issues that you're going to see not only at the state level, but also at the national level. Uh, just this morning, I was part of a, uh, a broadband coalition uh, that had our virtual day, and, and we talked with uh, our elected officials from Minnesota and uh, in Washington. And uh, they were very supportive and, and also communicated the, uh, uh, the, the support, that it isn't uh, party-driven. Uh, this, is, this is an important issue across the country. So I, I think you're spot on there. This is, this is an important issue for everybody. Thank you to my guest, Brian Crambeer with My Energy Cooperative. Minnesota Matters will return after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The countdown to the summer boating season is here. Tasha Radel has more. Thanks, Scott. 
Well, folks, I think it's safe to say spring has sprung. I can barely contain myself that summer-like temperatures are back in the forecast. And as you know, warmer weather and breezy conditions are ideal for ice outs on area lakes and rivers. And just this past week, one of the state's largest lakes, Minnetonka, had an early ice out. So it got me thinking about the upcoming boating season. Joining me today is Lisa Dugan with the Minnesota DNR. Lisa, I'm guessing we are starting to see a number of lakes and rivers opening up. Yep, you're right. And, you know, across the state, it looks like what ice is left is deteriorating very quickly. Um, Even in the northern parts of the state, um, the ice that's remaining is becoming more inaccessible. So it's melting really quickly away from the shoreline. So it kind of takes away that option to either recreate or not. But we definitely don't suggest trying to get out onto any ice that may be remaining. And if you're anxious to get out on the open water to bring a boat out, um, you know, be very cautious with the cold water and, um, you know, where you're launching from and just make sure to, like, plan ahead, um, knowing that the water is extremely dangerously cold at this time of year and to plan ahead with the safety equipment that you're going to need. I know this time of year, water temperatures are dangerously cold and can be quite debilitating if someone's caught off guard. Absolutely. There's um, a third of all boating fatalities in Minnesota happen during the cold water season. And, you know, there's a couple factors that come into play. Um, usually the, the lakes and rivers are less busy, so help may be further away. Um, so, you know, always go out with a buddy, go out with somebody else. Um, If you're paddling, you know, go in a group so that there's somebody there. Let somebody know where you're going and when you're coming back. And then dress for the water temperature, not the air temperature. So it might be a nice sunny day, but that water is still, you know, 45, 50 degrees. And um, what happens when you fall into the water initially is your body automatically gasps for air. And if you're not wearing a life jacket and that happens underwater, Um, you're much more likely to drown before even becoming hypothermic. Lisa, with the temperatures hiking back up this weekend, I have a feeling many Minnesotans are going to get the itch to get out on the water. I guess at least the hardy Minnesotans. Where I'm going with this is for those that are going to hit the water this weekend, they should probably keep in mind a number of the accesses might not be in tip-top shape quite yet. It, It is early in the season. Um, so definitely, you know, plan for where you're going to be going, um, you know, what your access is to the water. I know last year the DNR had reported an extremely busy boating season, and a lot of that had to do with the COVID-19 pandemic and people just being pent up and wanting to get outdoors and onto the water. Are you folks expecting another busy season this year? It looks that way. There was a lot of new boaters last year, and it was really interesting to look at, you know, registrations went up. Um, We saw that the waterways were busy because it gave people an opportunity to get outside more and to maybe either reconnect with um, boating or, you know, try it for the first time. So if, um, you know, whether you're a seasoned boater or if you're just getting started, educate yourself um, on any regulations that may have changed or anything that you're not familiar with, um, you know, know what the regulations might be for the water body that you're on. And there's online classes that are available to get a safety water safety certificate or boating safety certificate. And there's also some really great free classes for um, paddling. So 
there's some things that come into play that are specific to paddling, what kind of gear you need, and not just what the what's required by law, but you know, what are the best practices that a new paddler or new boater may not know. Well, Lisa, we're about out of time today, and I'm ready to head outdoors. Any parting words or safety tips? I think it's just, you know, as we start the season on a good note, um, plan ahead, make sure your boat is registered, make sure you have all your safety equipment, um, fire extinguishers, make sure your navigation lights are, are working properly, all of those things to really, you know, start the season off the best. If you're the captain of the boat, set the rules for your boat early, make sure everyone wears their life jackets and ensure that everyone's getting home safe at the end of the day. Thanks again to my guest, Lisa Dugan, with the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources. Have a great and safe weekend, Minnesota, and enjoy the sunshine and warmth. Back to you, Scott. Sounds good, Tasha. Thank you. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Quitting smoking or vaping can be difficult, and it can be even harder during times like these when stress is often higher. Finding healthy ways to manage that stress without nicotine is important. For Minnesota residents who are ready to quit smoking, vaping, or using smokeless tobacco, Quit Partner is ready to help. Through a family of free programs, Quit Partner offers free support like one-on-one coaching, emails and texts, educational materials, and Quit medications like patches, gum, and lozenges delivered by mail. In fact, a mix of Quit coaching and Quit medications can help double a person's chances of quitting. No matter what support a person would like to try through Quit Partner, it's always judgment-free. And now that Minnesota has raised the legal sales age for tobacco to 21, residents may be looking for quitting resources now more than ever. To learn more, visit quitpartnermn.com or call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. With demand for services higher than ever for organizations like the Salvation Army, reporter J.W. Cox joins us with the story of one Minnesotan who answered the call in a unique way over the last year, knitting 500 winter hats for those in need. Scott, if you were to walk into Tom Cornish's house, you're likely to get, if not a lesson, at least a glimpse into the meticulous care and process the 96-year-old veteran employs in making his hats. There's 48 of these in this loom. 48 stitches, they call these. Now i got to finish this one, and then two more. A little from this, a little from that. So no matter what I do, I'm helping somebody. If you ask Cornish just why he takes so much time and care to do this in the first place... My time is the Lord's time. The story of Tom Cornish making hats for the Salvation Army isn't even where his knitting began, though it has garnered his hobby the most attention. The World War II veteran started knitting on a handheld loom given to him as a gift. It was a piece of his day sprinkled around his other volunteer activities. The uh, looms came from my daughter and uh, along with some yarn, and they just got started, and I was uh, volunteering at the food shelf, and Guardian Angels in Elk River, and I was helping there, giving people whatever they needed, and uh, so that's just the way it was. It just kept going like that. When it became clear this was a way to provide for his fellow man, the jump to concentrating his efforts on winter hats became natural. All my life we've been been, uh, helping others. Uh, We volunteered a lot for many years before 
So I got to the room with my one of my daughters, and from that time on, we just kept making hats for others, and it's better to give than receive. In the true fashion of a military man, he's taken steps to make his process of creation more efficient as time has gone by. Oh, yes, I have. Yes, I, I, uh, I got a big jug, a wide mouth bottle in the kitchen that I use for a for holding the hats when I close them on top. And I got several sizes there for different size hats. His efforts have been noticed by not only those receiving the fruits of his work, but by people nationwide. I've got uh, mail from all over, from California, from, from the East Coast, down south, and even up north and even local here in Champlin, Minnesota. Those who are getting the direct benefit may not always know Cornish's name, but they certainly appreciate his handiwork. They don't know who I am, but uh, I'm I'm sure they appreciate them. Because uh, I went to the food shelf one time in Elk River, and some, some guy had come in there before me, and he was talking to one of the uh, uh, people that worked there, and he says, where are those good hats? <laughs> well, that's all that matters if they know the hat. They don't have to know me. <laughs> Dan Furry works for the Salvation Army of the North and was unsurprised that Cornish would have this kind of impact. He's a man of faith, and that is what drives him. And and it's, again, a, a, a veteran. I mean, he, he uh, enlisted. He wasn't drafted or anything. Uh, he, was, he enlisted. Uh, because he wanted to defend his country, and and that's just who Tom is, and he's been volunteering all his life. But beyond the hats and beyond the Salvation Army, for Furry, there's a greater achievement to be found in the Tom Cornish story. I love this story because, first of all, it's not about the Salvation Army. It's about what people can do to improve the lives of of those who are struggling. And I think I think the the main point of the story is everybody can do something. You know, Tom has chosen to take advantage of his skill at knitting hats, and and others are going to benefit from it. Um, uh, and and so I, I firmly believe that everybody can do something that can work toward improving the lives of others. And for Cornish, this adventure all about being a helping hand for those who may need it. The Salvation Army has been very grateful, just like they are when other people donate to them. And it makes me feel good that that I can give to people that really need it. And it's not to just everybody. It's those that really need it that are probably open to the gospel. I, I think just, just knowing that I'm doing it for the Lord and that somebody is really getting something out of it that they normally wouldn't. When I asked Cornish how he wanted his efforts to be remembered, his part in it almost became an afterthought. Well, I hope that they uh, think of the Lord and appreciate what others will do for them. And for Cornish, there's no stopping in sight. <laughs> no, I don't put any limit on it. I, I work for the Lord, and this is the Lord's work. When he calls me home, that's the end. He even has a timeline for how long the next batch of 500 may take. <laughs> well, I'd say another year and a half. <laughs> An effort, a story, and a man well-deserving of admiration and even a tip of the cap. And if you don't have one to tip, Tom Cornish 
might just make one for you. Scott, back to you. Thank you, JW. That's going to do it for us for this week. Thank you for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.